0: Uh, like close the, the powerpoint and turn on the radio. Right? The mouse disappeared? Yeah. Pretty interesting. Can't you like hold control and then it like appears? Yes. We'll just sleep it and then make it. Can they hear us? Uh, Probably. Just sleep the laptop and the week. We'll should probably come back. So tab? Sometimes tab Like unmute the mic. If you just sleep the laptop and wake it, it should come back. Like close the lid. Yeah. I mean, will it close the? Pro- it doesn't close the program. So if you just sleep it and then wake it, it should come back. Okay, Sorry about the technical difficulties. Uh, It is January 17th, 2021. Welcome to our Shiki Fellowship Sunday service. Hopefully you are well. Um, (coughs) Today we are continuing our sermon series uh, for the year on uh, the book of Judges. So if you could turn with me to Judges chapter 1. We're looking at verses 27 to 34, (coughs) which are the remaining verses of the first chapter of Judges. Let me quickly remind you of what we've read so far. We've read of Judah... And its conquering and capture of Jerusalem and uh, its surrounding regions. And then we read last week, of course, of the beginning of the downfall of uh, Israel. And we read about, of course, the parable of or the parable of a prayer, right? When we looked at Aksa and her prayer to, or sorry, her request to her father, how that acts as a template for prayer. And uh, in light of that, the unfaithfulness of the following tribes who fail in their conquests to fully uh, conquer the or um, drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. And it's an ongoing story here in verses 27 to 34, where we're going to be looking at uh, the sequential uh, attempts of conquest. Uh, in a sense, maybe successful to some, per- some people's perspective, but in many ways a failure. So let's look at it today, verses 27 to 34. This is what the Word of God reads in Judges 1:27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshin and its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites Canaanites persisted in living in that land. It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Akzib or, or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites. The inhabitants of the land and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labor for them. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in, in Mount Harris, in Aijalon, and in Shaalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Sela, and upward. Amen. What an inspiring word, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure this is probably nobody's, you know, cho- you know, choice to post on Instagram or uh, to post on their walls or anything like that. Uh, let alone anyone's favorite verse in Scripture. I've rarely heard anyone say it's oh, clearly Judges 127, That's my favorite verse in the Bible. But maybe I can compel you today that this should be on your Instagram post. Okay, lots to pray for today, but we're gonna begin with our unreached people group of the day. They come from India. They are called the Balti, and they live in the uh, border between India and Pakistan on the northern side, the northern province. And so we're praying for the Balti. There are 52,000 of these people, so a very small people group, but none are evangelical Christian. And they're mainly. Muslim. So, we'd like to pray for the Balti, their salvation, and for the gospelization of these unreached people of India. Um, Of course, Donald Trump got impeached this week for a second time. I think that's a world record now. Um, Anyways, it is what it is. Uh, But I think what's more important that we pray for on the heels of something like this uh, is the precedence it sets, it's the mindset it sets, and it also really puts into focus what exactly we are doing with these apps on our phone and what kind of power these apps actually hold. I think it's really interesting. And so I think we should pray for the world today that it is important for us to recognize as Christians, the things we consume are at times very subtle in nature and they're evil, but can quickly grow into something much worse. And that's actually the point of the sermon today. And you're going to see exactly how those things connect. So we're going to pray together uh, for, uh, hope. I'm praying for uh, wisdom on the end of the church, and I'm praying for uh, hopefully community you know, people around the world uh, that this kind of precedence uh, would not be allowed, right? That we fight for the freedom of speech. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together around your word, to read it, to learn, to gain from it. God, would you teach us this day? We look forward to the bread you have in store for us. Father, we also pray for the Balti of India. And we pray for the 52,000 of these people who are consumed by uh, this misleading truth of Islam. And we pray, Lord, Father, for the salvation of these people. We pray for the gospel to be presented and preached to these people. And that those that you know and that you've prepared, that they would Come to know that they would come to follow Jesus. Father, we also pray for the globe and the aftermath of the impeachment of the president of the United States, on the heels of the new uh, president being inaugurated, and all of the different presidents and different principles that are being challenged. God, I pray that as Christians and as believers, that our guiding compass is constantly the Word of God; that it never changes. The Father, no matter how much the world challenges us and opposes us on this word, that we would stand firm on it. So, God, would you give us wisdom and would you give us uh, a truthful lens to look at the world upon. Thank you, God, for the guiding principle of your word. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, Judges 1, 27-34. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm pretty excited to preach this sermon. And it's not a text that you would think is a text that is, you know, at face value, something really exciting to preach. But it is. Our sermon is entitled today, Drive Them Out. It comes complete, like, straight from the text, of course, uh, as you see it repeated over and over again in the text. 17th century English Puritan, famous English Puritan, John Owen, once wrote, and I'm sure many of you have read this before or heard this in some kind of sermon, be killing sin or it will be killing you right? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Of course, um, predating that, of course, is the Apostle Paul, for the wages of sin is death in the book of Romans. Cancer is one of the most destructive and devastating diseases in human history, and certainly in modern humanity, or sorry, modern human history. Even with today's immense technological advancements and, and scientific advancements, we still don't have any known cure 100% cure for cancer. Now there are treatments and surgeries that are in place today that are much more advanced and and more effective uh, that help with preventing or diminishing or slowing down cancer or in some cases, removing cancer cells altogether. But there is no absolute cure for this disease. The way we fight cancer today is by identifying and diagnosing it as fast as possible and then removing that problem area before the cancer grows and becomes uncontrollable and untreatable. Cancer is described as an abnormal and uncontrollable division of cells that infiltrate and destroy human body tissues. What starts off as a very small problem in the human body can quickly become terminal and lead to your death. Sometimes something can seem so very insignificant and minuscule. But when left alone, and untreated and unattended, it can quickly develop into something much more serious. The best time to address these things, of course, such as cancer is as early as possible. It's kind of what we're learning with coronavirus, right? Before they become more serious. Consider people with addictions. It is much better to look for signs of potential addiction in a person and then treat it before they fully become addicted, right? It's better to address these matters before they become too serious. But our human tendency, our human nature, is to act reactively instead of preventively in almost every circumstance. I think about my own Christian life and journey and wonder how many times I took the heed and warning of Scripture and avoided sinful episodes of my life. It's much more common in Christian testimonies to hear of these things of how one made mistakes, right? But learned from them and grew from them and gained insight about God and revelation about His Word regarding these errors that they made. That's most Christian testimonies, right? We tend to be reactive, more so than preventive, or better, proactive. Most Christian testimonies you hear are, are, sorry, I've rarely, if ever, heard a Christian testimony of, I read this in God's Word. It warned me to do this, so I didn't do it. (laughs) How many times do you hear that? Almost never. It's almost always, I knew what God's Word said, but I did it anyway. I screwed up, but I learned from my mistakes. We go to the gym after we gain weight. We start studying after we fail courses. We start saving money after we're in debt. We look to God in prayer and desperation after we terribly sin. After, 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 after. after, We're reactive. We're not proactive. Change that. That's the point of today's sermon. Don't be a fool. You know what the Word of God says. So you have every tool you need to be able to be preventive and proactive against sin. The Canaanites throughout the territories that Israel was commanded to take little by little were not friendly Middle Eastern men and women just building little tents and fires and cooking meat over them and just you know typical hunter-gatherers They're just trying to peacefully live and go about their life and they just happened to be in the land that the Israelites were promised right that's not the story if you read the Bible that is not the story And too many times, this is how modern people read the Bible. This was a grotesque, evil, despicable society of people that were not only pagan worshippers, worshippers of idols, but sexually impure, sexually immoral, unrighteous before God, a community whose sins had multiplied over generation after generation. There is a major failure on the end of the modern reader of the Bible to see and understand Humanity the way the Bible sees humanity Instead we read of the Canaanite wars And we see Israel conquering these lands And driving out these people And we see oppression and cruelty On the end of God and His people What a fail It's nice I applaud you for your sympathy It's nice that you give so much encouragement And support for these people of Canaan But I dare you to read Deuteronomy 9, verses 4-6, to Deuteronomy 18, 9-14, and Leviticus 18, 6-30. And you tell me how the Bible sees these people, how God sees these people, how God, how Moses and the people of Israel were to see the Canaanites. The conquest of Canaan was not so much about Israel becoming a nation politically and geographically, just like how our entrance to heaven is not simply about a collective group of saved people. It is about God's justice against evil, right? Wickedness and sin. These are the things that God conquers and has victory over. Israel's conquering of Canaan likewise was about God using them as a tool of justice against the Canaanites and their evil ways. Here's how Dale Davis puts it. These texts mentioned above, as, as I mentioned earlier, show that the conquest was an act of justice, Yahweh's justice. Israel was the instrument of his judgment upon a corrupt and perverted people. In our text today, we will examine three simple lessons that I think are crucial for us to grasp from the mistakes of the Israelite tribes in their conquering of Canaan. What started off so well with the tribe of Judah in the beginning of chapter 1, things quickly begin to unravel and by the chapter's end, we have a nation, tribe after tribe, beginning to compromise which inevitably leads to full-out apostasy by the end of this entire book. Here are those three valuable lessons that I saw in the text and I'd like to share with you today. Number one, driving out the Canaanites is a spiritual issue, not a military one. It is a spiritual issue, not a military issue. Number two, spiritual strength slash maturity removes and destroys evil. It does not make use of evil. Spiritual strength and maturity removes and destroys evil. does not make use of it. And finally, point three. This is just straight from the Bible, right? Be faithful with little and you will be faithful with much. First point, driving out the Canaanites is a spiritual issue, not a military issue. Anytime we encounter timestamps, censuses, or geographical details and lists in Scripture, the modern, let's just, I'll just say modern Western reader, maybe, perhaps. Anyway, the modern reader of the Bible is prone to wander. Prone to wander in their thought. Prone to misread the text. We often skip over these passages, and we don't spend enough time pondering this fundamental question. Why, as, as mundane as it is for you to read it, Why would the author have written it? Right? Why would the author have placed this information in this particular format for us to read? What does it contribute to the overall message that they're trying to send? We read timestamps and think history. We read a list of names and we think attendance. And we read geographical details like we did today. And we simply think geography. It's a nice detail. Gives me some context. That's a good thing to put in there. Thank you, author, for that extra tidbit of information. But there's nothing theological about this. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. We read these things incorrectly. What we read today may seem to you like a repetitive ancient list of geographical locations that you've never heard of, that the Israelites somewhat conquered and resided in. But that would be to miss the point completely. Read it carefully. Read verses 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33. That's seven consecutive verses. Is that seven? That's six consecutive verses. Six consecutive verses, all including the same phrase or some variation of. For six straight verses, the author repeats the phrase. They did not drive them out. Sometimes adds completely at the end. Repetition is a powerful teaching tool. It's a powerful teaching tool. Think about when you learned the alphabet or numbers or colors or names of animals or other basic things in elementary school. Think about as an adult how you learn, process, attain, retain information. One of the best ways is to have a format of repetition and simplicity. It's simplified repetition for the purpose of memorization. Both are achieved in the text here today. The most important lessons in my life were things that were constantly repeated to me, both by my parents and teachers and authorities, over and over again, to the point where I don't even need to think about it anymore. It just gets stored in the mind. We call this the storing of information in your subconscious. Perhaps this is why the opening chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 is written in a sequential, repetitive pattern. With the introduction of the of the day that it is, the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, what God made that day, let there be light, and that he saw that it was good. Right? How easy was it for you as a child, to memorize those things, to learn those things. Oh yeah, God made things in seven days. First day light, second day this, et cetera, etc, cetera, et cetera. Paul uses this technique. He uses the, uh, the pattern of, re- of uh, rhetoric of listing things, right? He lists, for example, the fruits of the Holy Spirit and he creates a rhythm and pattern to that repetition. The psalmists use this tool in their poetic language. They use repetition to help you memorize things. How easy is it for us to memorize verses such as the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me by green pastures. It's a very powerful tool. right? And it's repeated to us over and over and over again for the purposes of those things. To teach us and to help us learn and retain the things that we learn. Perhaps this is why some of the easiest things to remember are song lyrics. Compli- as complicated as they could be not just because they have a melody attached to them but because the format is easy to follow and easy to retain because we listen to songs over and over and over again repeated into our subconscious various and numerous studies have been conducted on the impact of repetition in learning here's a quote from one such study this is what they write repetition is a key learning aid because it helps transition a skill from the conscious to the subconscious Through repetition, a skill is practiced and rehearsed over time and gradually becomes easier. Also know that it was Aristotle who once said, it is frequent repetition that produces a natural tendency. Today, we would just call that a habit. So then why? Why, brothers and sisters, do we have this particular form of repetition in the text today? Well, Dale Davis, again, he writes this. What we have here is not geographical tedium but theological accusation. That is, theological geography. If the conquering of Canaan was an act of God's justice, I mentioned earlier, a theological and, uh, that is a theological motivation and reason for this conquering. Then the failure of Israel to do so in conquering this land and driving out its inhabitants completely is not a military issue. It is a theological issue it's a theological matter it's not a political issue or a geographical issue or some kind of national catastrophe this is a failure in the, in a theological perspective from a theological perspective it's the most important area of failure when we read this so you shouldn't read this and go oh well you know they just failed to drive out the Canaanites no this is a failure to obey God may not see it that way that's what it is sometimes we don't see our sins that way but it is the author here is clearly emphasizing to their reader look what your ancestors did they failed to obey God and they failed to drive out these inhabitants and these people and look at you now look at the result see what happens when you don't obey God Are you learning the lesson? They're not just writing these things down to just show off, hey, look at all this historical geographical information that I know. No, this is to show you how much you failed so that you wouldn't do it yourself. The point is this, brothers and sisters, don't do what these people did. Sometimes we read of God's moral codes and we read of his values and commands and all these things in the Bible and our human depravity and our sinful nature immediately opposes it. Well, that's... what's so bad about that, God? That doesn't seem so bad. Just this one time. Isn't this a better way to handle this situation? That doesn't hurt anybody, so why is it a sin? These are all terrible, terrible arguments against it. You ask Eve one day how that line of thinking goes for you. Killing sin is not a pragmatic issue, as was the driving out of the Canaanites. It's a spiritual issue. God warned Israel in Exodus 23 verse 33, even before this episode in Judges, he predicted this, and He told them this, and He warned them of it. Remember what I told you about being, reactive, being proactive instead of reactive? He already told them it. Exodus 23, verse 33. Look what He said. They shall not live in your... They, meaning the Canaanites, shall not live in your land. Otherwise, they will make you sin against Me. For if you serve their gods, it is certain to be a snare to you. God already told them exactly what not to do knowing what they would do. Davis again writes, remaining Canaanites would not be so much a military threat to Israel as much as they are a spiritual cancer. God's concern is not Israel having land and territory on earth. That's secondary to them being a God-honoring, God-worshipping, God-fearing people. The author of Judges is hence teaching us today, drive out what God says to drive out. Don't mess around with it. By God's word, drive it out for the sake of your soul. It's a theological issue. Number two, spiritual strength removes, or spiritual maturity removes and destroys evil, does not make use of it. Here's an interesting thing that we also see repeated in the text, that they put these people into forced labor. Human beings have a tendency, a grave tendency, to overestimate themselves. We We are so pompous, we're so prideful, we have this immense hubris about our lives. And we have at times a very distorted understanding of exactly what maturity really is. We understand maturity to consist of some sense of responsibility, some sense of wisdom. But many times we fail to comprehend or act in the most responsible of ways or the wisest of manners. One of the clearest fallacies I have observed in people's misunderstanding of maturity in their adulthood, for example is this idea that now that I'm some sort of adult, now that I'm the age of consent, now that I am the age of matur- maturity, now that I have a job, now that I have a salary, now that I have a car and a wife and have kids and all these things, I'm better capable of controlling myself so I can indulge in more. Heck no! That may be true to a certain degree, but it's a fallacious reason to go about indulging in things that you know are clearly harmful for your life. Certainly, certainly an adult is more capable mentally and physically of handling the effects of these things, such as alcohol, such as drugs. But that's no reason to indulge in them. What we tend to do is think that we're capable of handling more than we actually can. And this is what the Israelites mistakenly do in today's text. Note in verses 28, 30, 33, and 35, you see repetition again. The tribes grew stronger, it says, and they overpowered their Canaanite neighbors into forced Now you would think, you would just think for a moment that a nation that was under slavery for hundreds of years under Egypt would exercise a different means of empowerment. But nonetheless, this is, you know, what goes around comes around for these people, right? Nonetheless, this is a different generation, and maybe they weren't part of it. Maybe they weren't part of the generation that was enslaved, so they kind of forgot what happened to them. And they did as their neighbors were doing to other neighbors. They were flexing, if you will, by today's language. They thought, hey! This is like we tend to think today, hey, I'm strong now. I can handle this. Instead of getting rid of these people, let me use them as a resource. I'm going to use them to do things I don't want to do, right? So they put them into forced labor. They put these people into use. That is not what God said to do. That may seem pragmatic. That might seem practical. That might seem efficient. That might seem like the better thing to do. God is not asking you to think about what is the better way. He's already told you what is the best thing to do. It's not our position to question the thing that God has told us to do and go, well, maybe there's a better way to do this because I'm a lot smarter than God. I'm more mature now. What a terrible way of thinking. I'm reminded of King Saul who lost his kingship The day he offered up sacrifices that he shouldn't have, thinking it was the best thing to do, knowingly disobeying God's word through the prophet Samuel. He says in 1 Samuel 13, Hey Samuel, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And I love Samuel's response. You, sir, have done a foolish thing. (laughs) He's not saying offering burnt offerings to God is bad. He's saying, yeah, but remember what I told you? Why didn't you do it that way? There's a reason God would say to do it this way. What makes you think you know any better? You know what I think it was? I think it was the pride of becoming a king of Israel. I'm reminded at this time of Acon, he taken a plunder from a victorious battle that Israel had won. And Israel was commanded, don't take this section of plunder because it was uh, sacrilegious stuff. But he took it. He brought upon a grave punishment over Israel in which many people died as a result. When the Israelites who were given the blessing of manna from the sky, they're told specifically by Moses, don't take more than what you need for this day. For tomorrow more will come and God will provide for that day. Still, they go out, what do they do? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a horde. Just in case. Spiritual maturity, spiritual strength are displayed not by our control over evil. Because you know what the Bible tells us? You don't have any control over it. It's actually marked by our dismissal, removal of evil. We don't flex our godliness to the world By showing how much control and power and mastery we have over it. Over evil and its desires in our life. No. But instead we show the world our godliness by recognizing the evil that exists within us. Admitting that evil desire and doing whatever it takes to remove ourselves from a position of vulnerability or by removing that evil altogether. Perhaps this is the warning of the the command. Do not covet. We don't walk to the forbidden tree. If you were in the garden, for example, you don't walk to the forbidden tree and flaunt, oh, how much I'm not eating from it. Right? That's stupid. But that's 99% of us. It's like, oh, see, I'm not eating from it. And you're standing right next to it. You idiot. That's not what you're supposed to do. Instead, we shouldn't even look at the tree. You shouldn't even consider the existence of that tree. Instead, we look to the vastness of God's creation, the other stuff that God said you can eat, the stuff that He said you now have authority over, and He blesses you. And He says, you, Adam, Eve, people, master this, steward this, take care of this. Instead, our attention is to a tree that we're not supposed to eat from. We don't look at what God told us not to do and boast how much we aren't doing that. We're to show this depraved evil world that as Christians, we are living by a higher moral code that looks to what is permissible and the beauty of that life. But too many times our spiritual life is concerned with maneuvering the do-nots, right? The do-nots of life. We're far too concerned with what we can get away with rather than desiring to do what God wants us to do. Imagine being in the garden every day and thinking, hmm, today, how should I not eat the fruit? Rather than thinking, how should I take care of what God has created? Do you see the difference there? What the Israelites did with the Canaanites is nothing short of a compromise. It's tolerance. Of sin, We talked about this last year in one of my sermons. I guarantee I talked. One of the sermons was completely about this. The toleration of sin leads to destruction in our life. And any bit of compromise in our faith and in our life leaves room for sin. It leaves room. What begins with something small in our eyes quickly multiplies to much more. And by the time we realize how far we've come, it's far too late. Do not compromise with evil. The mature will see evil for evil, and they will not mess around with it. I think this point will be really, really, really understandable, and will really hit home when we're parents, and we're raising children. right? At least that's my hope. I think it'll make a lot of sense when we get to that point in our life. Final point, be faithful with little, and you will be faithful with much. The last point is a simple one. Very simple one, right? One that's best articulated perhaps in Luke 16. Jesus teaches there that those who are faithful with little will be faithful with much. Another fallacious line of thinking in the human mind is that we think the more we have, the more responsibility we are given, the more responsible I will be. And that the reason for my laziness and my compromising and my irresponsibility is because, well, there's not much on the line anyway. There's not much I'm responsible for anyway. If God gave me more, then yeah, I'll be more responsible. Let me just echo the words of Samuel the prophet: "You've done a foolish thing. <laughs> that is, that is ridiculous. Dare I say that's idiocy? Do not think like that. Do not." If you are only responsible with a lot and much when you have it and not with little when you don't, you're an imposter. You're a fake. You're not responsible at all. What we do with little or much and anything in between should be the same as a Christian. Consistent. There are those of us who only engage, only commit, only serve the church and God and Jesus wholeheartedly when the stakes are high and there's a bunch of things in front of me and the prize is great. This is not the heart that followers of Jesus are to have. I remember when I led worship, I always was mindful of this, right? that we don't prepare for the audience that's visible, but we prepare for the audience that's invisible. Think of a musician who steps out onto stage and sees a crowd of 20 people and decides, you know what, tonight I'm gonna mail it in. I'm gonna wing this tonight. Those 20 people paid good money to be there, I think, (laughs) right? Next night, musician steps out onto stage, 20,000 people. What do they do? Oh, wow, there's 20,000 people. I'm gonna put on a show tonight. What would you think of this person? I have one word for a person like that crappy. Please. Liar. Our faithfulness should not be dictated by the quality or sorry quantity of our responsibility. It should be dictated by the one in whom we have faith, the one who's given us that responsibility. Respect the hand that gives us little or much. Don't be so focused on what is given or not given for that matter. Now, as a pastor, it's certainly easy to fall into the trap of preaching to the visible audience. It is very easy to think lesser of my responsibility to preach God, God's word faithfully and truthfully and, dare I say, with conviction and with passion. When there are less people listening, when the audience is small. But wouldn't you view me that way, if I did that, if I behaved in that way, that it would be an extreme failure for one to pastor with that kind of mindset, imagine having a pastor only preaches it, preaches passionately and with conviction and with preparation. When they preach at conferences and retreats, and there's hundreds, if not thousands, of people, and then you meet them on Sunday at your home church, and they come to the pulpit and they're just like, "All right, just open your Bibles. Yeah, God loves you. <laughs> like, right? What would you say? This guy's a fake. Right?" I expect you to have that expectation of me. But just like I am supposed to be like that in my duty, I think we're all to be like that in our duties, in our responsibilities. The same way each and every one of us is given something. Maybe it's a little, maybe it's a bit more, maybe it's a little bit more than that, maybe it's much. But we are given something life we have and we are to be faithful with that whether it's little or much here Israel is given the promise of land a responsibility a command to take the land but instead they go in and they fail to dispossess the Canaanites the wicked inhabitants of this land this ultimately and you will see as we continue to read the book of Judges leads to compromise and then even though it looks like success on the outside, because at the end of the day, if you go to the Israelites at this point in time, you travel back in time, and you say, Israelites, what are you doing? They'd be like, well, God told us to take the land. So we did. Yeah, but he also told you to drive out all the inhabitants. Yeah, but look what we did instead. We put them to labor. Now we're making use of them instead of like just banishing them. Isn't this great? So pragmatically and practically and from a statistics perspective, I might go, well, you know what? You're right. Right. <laughs> That sounds like a good idea. But it's a complete failure. On the outside, it could look great. And we've heard of churches like this, right? Outside looks great. On the inside, hollow. Nothing but failure. Sure, they gained territory they gained territory. They got stronger. They enslaved the inhabitants. But they failed where it counts. They failed in their faithfulness to God's will. So here's the warning for us today. You can look like you succeeded without actually having succeeded in God's eyes. And we're given this warning in Matthew 7. Those of you who will come to me one day at the end of time, right? The narrow path, wide path, all that stuff. And he says, some will come to me at the end of time. They'll say, Lord, Lord, haven't we commanded, haven't we praised you? Haven't we commanded people, you know, demons uh, to be banished in your name and all these things? And Jesus, what does he say? He says, I never knew you. Isn't that so scary? That freaks me out. Every time I read Matthew seven, I'm just like, like, literally, I just get terrified. But that that's me. There's no point in looking good to the world if you've miserably failed to God. It may seem like a little command to you and to me to drive them out completely, but it quickly becomes the reason for their spiritual demise. Do not be anything less than faithful in the little, so that you will be faithful with much. Here's my conclusion for today. I hope these things have been powerful to you as they've been powerful to me this week. They've been very convicting to me, to be honest. Dale Davis, once again. By the way, I'm using his commentary on judges. I think it's the best commentary. So I'm going to quote him a lot throughout this sermon series. But D.L. Davis sums up today's warning uh, with this heed in his book. He writes, Tolerate Baal's people, and sooner or later, you bow at Baal's altar. The warning to us today is evident and clear. Obedience of God is a spiritual matter. To be faithfully obeyed, whether it be in much or in little, and to not treat any sin or any evil lightly. Seemingly small acts of disobedience can lead to a life of habitual unfaithfulness israel stands as an example for us today of what a faith community can become when we are not proactive or preventive against sin remember what john piper says wage war against sin this is not a battle you take lightly so just to reiterate point one drive out sin completely christ has won this war for you and in him there is power over sin point two Your goal is to remove sin from your life, not to tolerate it, tame it, or act as a master over it. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And point number three, be faithful in little and in much. Be faithful always and in all things. There is no area of your life you should not seek to be faithful in. The way that doctors treat cancer today is the most effective form that we have uh, as of now is to detect it as soon as possible and remove those cells from our bodies before they grow to be uncontrollable. The idea is to be preventive. The idea is to be proactive before cancer spreads wildly. Get it before it gets you. This means taking action to get body checkups, to look for the smallest signs of potential infection, to be alert and aware of any possible detections at all times and why do people go to the lengths and the trouble to detect and fight cancer and prevent cancer in their life? You know why? Because they know it's serious and they know it's deadly. Well brother and sister, you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus Christ you're a believer of the gospel and the gospel begins with you are sinner. Then what of sin? Does the Bible not teach that it is deadly and it is absolutely serious and it is deserved of your attention in your life. Last time I checked, it's deadly. If left alone, it will wildly uncontrollably infect every area of your essence. Let us not be reactive to our sins, but instead let us move towards being proactive and preventive. May the direction and light of God's word and his truth be your guiding light. Let our testimonies not only be of the lessons learned, through our transgressions. But let us also testify of the blessings of obeying God daily in faithfulness. Brothers and sister, next time you're asked to do a testimony at a conference, at a retreat, or any kind of Christian gathering, go up there and boldly proclaim this. This is what my pastor told me to testify about. Today I'm going to tell you what the Word of God said, what it taught me, and why I obeyed it. Thank you. Amen. God bless. You testify that and see how they react to that. Let's pray. take some time to reflect on God's word. Reflect on what he has blessed us with today.